again to Refinery Church and specifically welcome again to our weekly worship gathering. Like I said at the beginning of service, there's a lot that we, as a, we do as a church. There's a lot that we do outside of these walls. There's a lot we do in these walls just on different days and times. But tonight, on Saturday nights at 6.30 for an hour or so, we gather to worship. And, and that is our purpose. We worship God together, we commune together, and everything we do together is worship. Even from, you've been greeted tonight. People have served you coffee. People have ser are serving your kids right now in kids' church. They're worshiping God. They're serving Christ's bride, and they're worshiping God. And right now, as we conclude our corporate song and praise, that's worship. And we're going to continue in worship through the reading of God's word together. And so with that being said, open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're studying. Tonight we're going to worship God through reading his word and allowing it to transform our hearts and our minds. And we've been in a series over the last several weeks, uh, now five weeks, called Ephesians Therefore. And the purpose of this series has been to, to walk through the book of Ephesians chapter by chapter and and break down different themes we find throughout the chapters, see what Paul had to say to the church in Ephesus, and try to apply that accurately to our lives today. And now that we're five weeks in, it's pretty clear, we've seen this play out as of now, how this book, even though it was written all in one letter, Paul broke it up into two parts. One part, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, were all about doctrine, or as we said last week, what God is asking, or what God has done for us. So all the things that God has done for us, and we saw this play out. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, we saw plenty of examples of this. We saw the Holy Trinity, how God is both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw how God works through us, through well, how He works through us, and works in us, and works for our salvation. We saw how the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and how He leads us. We also saw how God has saved us and how God has provided us mercy and how God has provided all that we need for our salvation and all that we need to lead others to salvation as well. So we've seen a lot about what God has done for us. And then last week as we opened up chapter 4, we saw the other side of the coin, which is what God is asking of us. And chapter 4 opened that way where we saw how God is asking, of, asking us to maintain the unity meaning to maintain the unity within the body of believers, how we as a church body all have one common thing about us. We are all under the authority of the cross, and because of that, we all fall under his command, and we all maintain unity through that command. So we walked through that last, last week together. And now we move to chapter 5, where we're one chapter away from finishing the book of Ephesians, and then we move into the book of Luke as we open up our Easter sermon series. But... Tonight we're in chapter 5, and the passage we're going to read is all about time. Paul is going to talk about, in length, time. What you do with time, how you use your time, what's the best way to use your time. He's going to talk a lot about time. Now, I don't have to say this, because you already know it, but you don't have a lot of time. We all don't have a lot of time. We all don't know how long we have on this planet. We all don't know how long we're going to be here. We also see time goes by a lot quicker than we might want it to. Things just kind of happen. 
time keeps moving forward. It's the one thing that we're held prisoner to. We cannot stop time, no matter how hard we try. This is a little fun fact, but there's a mathematical reason why time seems to go faster every year. You know how you think, like, man, this year's going by so quickly. Well, there's a mathematical reason for that. If you're three years old or five years old, one year is only one-fifth of your life. So proportionally, that year takes up a lot of your life. When you're 60, one year is only one-sixtieth of your life. Proportionally, it's less time in the grand scheme of what you've experienced. And so mathematically, time seems like it goes by quicker every year because that year is taking up less time in your overall lifespan. Now, I don't need to give you the mathematical reason why that occurs. You know it's true. Time goes by quickly, and every year as we sit down for our New Year's resolutions and think about all the things we did, many of us look back and regret the things we didn't do, the things we didn't get to, the, the time we wasted. And so Paul's going to talk about time tonight. As he wrote to the, to the Ephesians, he's going to talk to us about time Tonight's passage is chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. But I'm going to break that, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to break that up into two parts. I'm going to cough again, you better mute me. Thank you. I'm going to break this up into two parts. The first part is verses 15 through 18a. 15 through 18a, this is where Paul goes into the, to a lot of practical Application. He's going to share a lot about what it means to use your time wisely and what that looks like. We're going to see a lot of, not rules, not rules, but we're going to see a lot of what not to do, how not to use our time. And then Paul's going to jump into the second portion of tonight's passage. And the second portion, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it's about quite yet. I want to leave you on, your, on, your, on the edge of your seat a little bit. We're going to get there as we move along in our passage tonight, but... If you will, <coughs> if you will, open your Bibles and read with me, starting in verse 15, where we're going to read a few verses about what Paul has to say about how to use our time. Here's what he says. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, in those short verses, Paul gives us three pieces of advice, good biblical wisdom on how to use our time. And I'm going to break them down for you um, piece by piece. The first one Paul teaches us is right here in the beginning of verse 15, where he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Now, is Paul trying to say that we should literally look carefully to how we walk? Is Paul's words liter literal, as in, look down and watch your step? Of course not. Paul is not telling us to watch our step. He's not worried that we might trip when we're, we're walking. Paul is giving us something a little bit more deep than that. But to understand what Paul is trying to say, we need to understand the literal meaning of what he originally wrote. And for that, I want to go to the Greek a little bit, um, what he originally wrote this in. When you take this phrase and you, you break it down into how it was originally written, you get a few words that, that were used here. And each word gives us a better understanding of what he literally was trying to say here in these verses. The first word, look, when he says, look carefully, then how you walk. The word look, it was derived from the, from the Greek word, which means to pay attention. 
The word carefully comes from the word which means diligently, and the word walk comes from the word that means to live. And when you break that down into the right grammatical sequence it's supposed to be, you get the phrase, uh, diligently pay attention to the way you live. That is what Paul is trying to say, the literal interpretation of his words, diligently pay attention to the way you live. And you can break that down even further, because that word to live is a word that they use not to talk about your life in a moment. There's a word in Greek for life that's like your life in the moment, what you, the stage you're in in the moment. The word Paul uses here is not the word for the moment, it's your whole life. It's the 360 view of everything you've ever done, all of your actions, all of your decisions, everything you choose to do with your life. That's what Paul's talking about. So he's literally saying, diligently pay attention to every aspect of your life, every decision you make, everything you choose to do, everything you as an individual do in your life, diligently pay attention to it. So you can kind of see where Paul, what Paul believes when he talks about how to live your life. Paul is not trying to communicate that you should just watch life pass you by. Paul is not going to be very happy to see Christians, especially in the Ephesian church, which is who he was writing to. He, he's not going to be happy to see Christians just kind of living life and not really caring about what they do with time. He's not going he to be happy to see Christians and their lazy boy day after day watching day, week, month, year go by and they've done nothing with their time. Paul is very intentional. Use your time wisely. Don't waste your time. Diligently pay attention to the way you live. Which means, take a look at every action, every decision, everything you're doing in life. Everything that you choose to do in your day to day. Are these things good? Are these things wise? Which actually, the rest of verse 15 talks about how we should use this time. I'll read verse 15 again. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so Paul is not just saying use your time for whatever you need to use it for. Don't be lazy. He is saying that. But you could take that and think, okay, well, he's saying use my time. You know, don't waste my time. I'm going to go run a marathon. Not a bad thing to do, but that's not what he's trying to communicate. He's not saying just use your time for good things. He's saying use your time for wise things things. Now, a lot of times we, when we hear the word wisdom, we think of intellectual ability. It's very easy for us to, to hear about wisdom and think about it being an intellectual characteristic. You know, that person's really smart, they must be wise. Or that person's really not that smart, they must not be very wise. And although there is some application to that, the Bible even uses the word wisdom in some intellectual sense, here and most places in Scripture, wisdom is not directly correlated with your intellectual ability. Wisdom has nothing to do with how smart you are. I think a great example of this is in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes to the Roman church, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became fruitile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now Paul here, if you read the context of Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about the religious leaders in the Jewish community. And I don't know if you know much about what it took to be a Pharisee, a religious leader, a rabbi. 
These were not dumb people. Rabbis were the smartest of the Jewish people. They had to go through years of training. They had, had to have the, memor- the Torah memorized. They had to know everything they had, uh, they had in the Torah. And then they went and traveled with their own rabbi for years. They were a disciple for, of another rabbi for years, learning and training and watching them, emulating them. These were not dumb people. They were very smart people. And yet, Paul calls them fools. Why are they fools? Well, he gives us the answer there in verse 21. They knew God, but they did not honor God. He's directly referencing their wisdom based on how much honor they give God. They knew God, and yet they did not honor Him. And so here, and in many other examples in Scripture, wisdom or foolishness is directly connected to how you use your time in in regards to honoring God. And so when we read verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, we begin to see what Paul is really trying to communicate here. Diligently pay attention to the way you live. Look at every moment of your life, every decision you make. Don't allow one moment, one choice to go unnoticed. And ask yourself, is that choice honoring God? Is that choice going to further my relationship with God? Is that choice going to send me in a better walk with Christ? Am I going to be better off in my relationship with Christ because of what I'm about to do? Now, this does not always mean a yes or no answer. Like I said, sometimes laziness falls into that category where you can not do anything. But I would even argue there that not doing anything is just living a stagnant life. And Paul is not communicating, go hide in a a corner, go hide under a rock and not do anything. In fact, in other letters, Paul spends a lot of time talking about how we're not supposed to do that. But diligently pay attention to the way you live and make sure that every choice we're making is, is based in the wisdom of the Scriptures and the desire to be wise in honoring God. That is Paul's first point here in this first section of the passage. The second point he makes here is in verse 16 where he says, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Again, that word time, it's the same word, your life, making the best use of your life, every aspect of your life. Are you making the best use of the time you've been given? James 4, 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. We don't have a lot of time to spare. God has only given us a little bit of time on this earth, and so Paul is is urging us to ask that question. Are we making the best use of the time we've been given? Is our life leading us to know God better? Or is our life leading us to just kind of a mediocre, oh yeah, God, I like God. Oh yeah, I go to church on Sunday or Saturday. Oh, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I have a relationship with God. That could be the way you do it, but I feel like it would lead you to some pretty deep conviction when you read Paul's plea here. Are you making the best use of the time you've been given? I think as Christians, there's something that we need to really think about. That is the mission that we've been given as believers. Because we all have a mission. You know, Refinery Church, we have a mission statement. Our mission statement is what kind of guides our church and how we operate. 
But besides our church's mission statement or, or what our church does or says, each individual Christian has a mission statement. Your mission statement is the Great Commission. Every single one of us is given this command to go and make disciples of all nations. All of us. Not your pastors, not the people on church staffs, not the people who, who lead the church, even though we're all a part of the church. Not the people who are professionals, which doesn't exist. Us, the church, believers in Jesus Christ, we're all given this one mission to go and reach the lost and to reach the nations with the gospel. That's our mission. And so when I read verses like this, make the best use of the time we've been given, I, I think of our mission, and I, and I ask myself this question, is my life leading that mission well? Not just, am I doing good things for God, but is my life leading that mission well? Is my life in a place where people know Christ because of my actions? I think it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Am I focused on the mission that I've been given? Am I focused on what God has given me as my, my job, which is to go and make disciples of all nations? There's a, a football player that I'm very fond of. He's my, probably my favorite player of all time. His name is Luke Keekley. Luke Keekley played on my, my hometown football team, the Carolina Panthers, for quite a few years. And, and in 2015, he was given the, the Best Defensive Player of the Year award. He was the best defensive player in all the NFL. In fact, that year, he was actually ranked number three of all players in the league. He was the third best player to play that year in the league. And, and during the award ceremony, they had a little video that played to kind of share about Luke and, and other teammates and other players in the league were interviewed to ask, you know, when you think of Luke, what do you think of? And every single player had their own little opinion about Luke. They all loved him. He's a great guy. But many of the players said how much they hated playing against him. And two players in particular were quoted in saying that, that they believed he was a mind reader, that he could read their minds. Now, obviously, he couldn't literally read their minds. However, it is pretty impressive what Luke Keekley could do. See, Luke played defense. His job was to keep the offense from scoring points or getting any yards. And Luke spent so much time watching film that by the time the game came around, that he could predict what the offense was going to do before they, could, before they did it. In fact, they went and looked at all the different plays that Luke played that year, and this is a true statistic. Luke Keekley predicted 60% of all plays that were, pl that were played that year, meaning that he not only told them what was going to happen, he told them when it was going to happen and where it was going to happen, 60% of the time. You can see why an offensive quarterback would not like playing against Luke Keekley, because every time they go up to the line, more often than not, he'd say, oh, they're running here. They're passing to that guy. They're going to motion over here and throw it. This He predicted everything. So not only did the team that he was playing against hate him, the team he played for loved him, because he made everyone's job a lot easier. Instead of having to guess or hope you got it right, you just looked at Luke Keekley and he'd say, yeah, he's going to come right here. Just get ready for that. And they do it. Luke was not the biggest, was not the most athletic. He wasn't the, the strongest, even though he was a great player in those regards too. What made Luke so special was that he had a mission and that he spent all of his time working on that mission. His mission was to be the best player he could be and what he knew he could use was his brain. And so he spent hours and hours 
of his week watching film, studying the other team he was playing against, learning everything that they could do, everything they've ever done. And so when the game came, he would predict what they were going to do, and he made their t- his team better. Luke was on mission for his mission, which was to stop the other team from scoring, and Luke made his team better because of it. And so when I hear stories like that and I re-watch videos of players saying that he was a mind reader because of all the studying he did, I, it leads me to a little bit of a conviction. You know, am I that on mission for my job, for my mission? Am I that serious about what God has given me? And all of us have the same mission. Are we on mission for reaching people for Christ? Are we on mission for leading people to know Jesus better? He says to make disciples. Are we ready? Are we prepared to live a life where we are fully focused on the mission that each of us have been given? Same with Luke Keekley, though. Are we on mission to make our team better? As a church body, are we on mission to make our our church the, the best place possible to lead people into? You know, we go off and make disciples. Are we also ready to bring them in and and have them join a church community that is living out the Great Commission, living out the things that God is calling us to do? Are are we on mission in that way? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. It has to be a question we ask individually. It's not something I I can ask for you. It's not something that someone else can ask for you. It's something you have to ask yourself. Paul is saying that we should be focused, wise, and productive men and women for Christ. That we should diligently pay attention to the life we've been given. That we should not watch our lives go by without intentionally making choices that are going to honor God. That we should not waste our time, even though our time is short. But Paul then continues in verse 18 with a pretty clear statement in regards to alcohol use that I think is just really interesting to read. Here's what Paul says in verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, on the surface, you can understand why Paul would put that in in this text. It's actually pretty, it makes a lot of sense. Everything Paul said up to this point is all, all about using your time wisely, not wasting time. And so, on the surface, without having any, any other information, without any, knowing any other uh, context of the scripture, you can see why Paul might make this claim here. You know, don't waste your time. Use your time wisely. Pay attention to every ch- decision you make. And then the very next thing he says is don't get drunk with wine. Don't go and, and drink excessively. Doesn't that make sense in regards to using time wisely? I mean, Paul, it, may, it makes sense. However, there is another deeper meaning to Paul's words. It's all based on the context of who he originally was writing this to, which is the church of Ephesus. Paul was writing this to a nation, to a people, who were very highly influenced by the Greek. They worshiped gods and goddesses from the Greek, and and their favorite god to worship, and you're going to see why in a moment, was a guy named Dionysus. Now, Dionysus was the god of winemaking. He had a few other jobs as well, things that he did for them. He was the god of winemaking, the God of pleasure, and the God of fertility. And so, without getting too graphic, I bet you can imagine what you do to worship a God that is about winemaking, fertility, and pleasure. And you can probably imagine why that's their favorite God to worship. 
this God to them was all about cheap pleasure, cheap filling of this hole in our heart that we are constantly trying to fill. And for them, it was very dangerous. Not only were these vices of theirs, but now they're not only being told to do them, they're, telling, they're being told that you're going to honor your God if you do them. So imagine that for a moment. You have these vices in life, the things you do that are, are not healthy, not good for you. But then you're told if you worship this God, if you go and do them, you're actually doing yourself a favor. You're going to be better off because of these vices. And you see how this is starting to build a culture of a really unhealthy lifestyle where everything you do is all about the cheap pleasures of life. Whatever just gets you that quick high, that whatever can fill that hole in your heart for just a moment. So when Paul is preaching to them, yes, he is making a clear rebuke on excessive alcohol use, but it goes deeper than that. He's making a rebuke on the fact that they lived lives where they were constantly chasing after cheap highs, constantly chasing after things that weren't going to bring them actual fulfillment. He was telling them to get rid of this worship of a God that only cares about temporary fixes and to then instead go in the opposite direction, go in the right direction. It would be like today as Christians if, if we were told that God would be honored if we sped. You know, the faster you go on the highway, the more God's going to be honored. If you did that, yeah, you know that's not good for you. However, if it's honoring God... Why not do it? Sure, it's bad. It might be dangerous, but if I make it home safely, I've brought God honor, didn't I? That's kind of what they experienced here in Ephesus. They, they were told, do these things. Yeah, I know they're bad for you. Yeah, being constantly drunk isn't going to be good for you, but it's going to honor God. And so they did it. And a whole culture was completely destroyed, culturally at least, because they all were chasing after temporary, short-term fixes to a long-term problem. And I'm spending a lot of time talking about this because maybe you've already picked up on it, but even though Paul originally wrote this to the church of Ephesus, I think it's pretty clear to see that this applies well to our culture today. If any culture connects well with the culture of Ephesus, it's the culture of America. Because we are obsessed with cheap, easy pleasures. I mean, look at it. Look at it. There's a McDonald's on every corner. Why? Because it's cheap, easy pleasure. You look at the different things you'll find online. Why is it there? Because it's cheap, easy pleasure. Look at the things of this world. We have convinced ourselves to just settle for temporary fixes to long-term problems. And all of us, even us Christians have this hole in our hearts that we are filling with temporary fixes, hoping that it'll create a long-term solution, and we know it won't. Every single one of us is struggling with this, especially those who do not know Christ. Everything Paul has said up to this point is good advice. To live your life wisely, to not waste your time, to pay attention to your decision-making, to not be lazy. All these pieces of advice that Paul's given, it's good advice. It's good. However, if I were to close tonight's reading with just this passage, and I didn't read any further, we'd be in some, we'd be in trouble. Because Paul said good advice so far, but 
there's one piece to this puzzle that's missing. One piece that if you don't add to it, it's nothing more than an inspirational TED Talk. Paul's words here is good advice, and yet there's one piece missing that we need to add to this, to this whole passage in order for it to be a word of God. If you take my religious commentary out of it, all we've learned is just how to live your best life. But Paul's going to continue in the second half of tonight's passage. And he's, not, he's going to give you something that is missing in the first half of tonight's passage. Because the first half is tearing things down. Don't waste your life. Don't drink to, to excess. Don't do these things. Don't waste your life doing those things. But the second half of the passage is where Paul gives you the alternative. Don't do this, but then Paul continues and gives you what you should do instead. And that makes this a complete passage. And so if you will, read with me the rest of tonight's reading, which is the rest of verse 18 all the way through verse 21. It says, But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You might know this name. You might not know why you know, you know this name, but there's a man named Dwight L. Moody who was a shoe salesman in London years and years ago. Dwight L. Moody, a shoe, sh a shoe salesman in London, had this radical experience with Christ one day. That while working, he had this radical experience with Christ, and, and his life was turned upside down. He went from a secular shoe salesman to an evangelist overnight. He didn't have a church. He didn't have experience. He wasn't a pastor, never, never called himself one. He never had a formal education around the, the seminary, around the Bible. And yet, all Dwight L. Moody wanted to do was go out and share the testimony he'd experienced, share his life and what Christ had done for him. And for years, he did this. Dwight went out and he just told people the gospel people what God had done for him and many many people were saved because of the ministry Dwight did now over the time Dwight got pretty popular people began to know who Mr. Moody was they learned about his story learned about his testimony and he began to create a name for himself in, in religious circles and right around the time that Mr. Moody was, was preaching on the streets, there was a, a group of pastors that gathered in London to start planning this giant what they called a crusade not like the old crusades. It was a crusade to lead people to Christ. They wanted to build this crusade in London. It's like a mini revival, if you will. We kind of use the word revival. That's what they were trying to do, this revival in London that they were going to create. And, and they gathered to start planning out the services and how it would work and where they would go. And, and while they gathered and spoke about the, the plans for this big crusade of theirs, they started to talk about, well, who should be the keynote speaker for this revival, for this crusade? After some talk and after some names were suggested, someone finally stood up and, and suggested Mr. Moody as the keynote speaker. They'd heard about his ministry, heard about his testimony, and thought he'd be a great option to preach. And, and after this man suggested M Mr. Moody as a candidate, uh, a prideful, older pastor 
stood up in the crowd and he said, and I'll quote his words here, he said, why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's unordained, uneducated, and inexperienced. Who does he think he is? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? After some silence in the room, another pastor stood up, a, a younger pastor but much wiser, stood up and, and rebuked the older pastor and said to him, and again I'll quote, he said, no, Mr. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. That, that quote has been in church history books for years. That quote is a good working definition of what Paul is preaching here in verse, uh, verse 18. If you're around the church for very long, you'll hear people talk about the Holy Spirit. It should be talked about. Oftentimes we neglect it because it's hard to understand, or he's hard to understand. But he's important to talk about. He's a part of the Holy Trinity. He's important to talk about. And, and when you read verse 18, it says, but be filled with the Spirit. And the question you should ask yourself is, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And this example here that I share, this story of Mr. Moody, is a great working definition of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This younger pastor who stands up in defense of Mr. Moody, he says, the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. And that is exactly what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to let the Spirit have a monopoly on your life. Just to, so we're all on the same page, there's, there's two things you're going to hear the church talk about. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They're two different things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. It happens in your conversion. You say yes to Christ and you are baptized within the Spirit. You get the Spirit indwelling within you. Every believer has the Spirit within them. Every believer has the Spirit dwelling within them. That's very important for us to understand. Now, over time, as you mature in your walk with Christ, you're going to be able to understand the Spirit better. You're going to be able to communicate with the Spirit better. He's going to guide you better. Because as you grow in your maturity in Christ, you're going to be able to interpret the Spirit, let Him guide you better. You're going to know God's will better for your life as you are guided by the Word of God. And that's where the filling of the Holy Spirit comes into play. Because as believers, we know that we have the Spirit indwelling in us. However, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens all the time, or should happen all the time. It's something that happens regularly within your life. A commentary I read this week wrote it this way. I thought it was a good definition um, for what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They said that the filling is a repeated reality of spirit-controlled behavior that God commands believers to maintain. What they're trying to say and what I'm trying to say is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to allow the Spirit to move in your life, you have to allow the Spirit to monopolize your life, to have a monopoly on your, on your soul. And think about that for a minute. What does it mean for a company to have a monopoly? Well, it means there's no other companies in the sector. No other companies have a hold on that, on that um, product or whatever they're selling. That company that has a monopoly, they get to control the market. They get to control everything about the product. They get to make decisions for the product. They get to change the price of the product. And who's going to stop them? There's no one else there to change those things for them. 
A monopoly controls the market. There's no competition. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. If we want the Spirit to lead us, we want the Spirit to guide us, we want to be filled with the Spirit regularly, the Spirit has to control our lives. He has to have a monopoly on our lives, on the way we live, which means there's no competition. No one is competing for our lives if we want to be filled with the Spirit regularly. No one is, is leading us in one direction, and, and even if the Holy Spirit has a 95% control, if there's that last 5%, it doesn't have a monopoly. It does not control our lives completely. There's still something there that's holding on, that's controlling us a little bit. And that's where the enemy is going to get us. That's where the enemy is going to attack us. No, Paul's words here in verse 18 give us a lot of information about what it, me what it means to be filled with the Spirit. One, what Paul says here is a command. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's commanding us to do that, which means if he's commanding us, there's some part for us to play. We have to do something with it. At the same time, we have to recognize the authority of God, recognize his sovereignty, and know that this is him doing this for us. He is filling us. It is his spirit filling us. Now, what does this all mean? How do we, how do we put this into a practical application? Well, like I said here, the filling is a repeated reality of spirit-controlled behavior that God commands believers to maintain, which means there is responsibility on, on our part, things that we are supposed to do on our part for the Spirit to move in our lives. And luckily, Paul gives us a few examples of what that looks like in the rest of this section. I'll read again, starting in verse 19. Here's some examples of what it looks like to live a Spirit-filled life. Verse 19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We want the Spirit to move in our lives. There are things that we are supposed to do. There are things that God commands us to do. There are things that we should be doing, and here's a good working list of things we should be doing addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about worship, worshiping God, allowing ourselves to worship God. He's actually really talking about corporate worship, which is what we've been doing tonight, singing praises together as a corporate body. God wants the Spirit to move, and the Spirit's going to move when we gather and we worship. Now, is Paul saying that we should just sing along to the words and kind of blank out and wait for it to end and um, you know, wait for our, the worship leader to tell us to be seated? No. That's why he continues by saying, making melody to the Lord with your what? With your heart. It's not something we just do because it's, you know, oh, everyone's singing, I'm going to sing too. It's a genuine heart change of, I want to worship God because our God deserves worship. I want to worship God because he deserves that worship. Years ago, my, my father-in-law, well before he was my father-in-law, sat down with me one day, and I don't even know why we started talking in the first place, but he started sharing with me about worship ministry. You know, he's, a, he's a worship leader in Flint, and he was sharing with me about worship ministry and, and all the things he would do during the week to prepare to lead worship. And 
I remember saying to him, I asked this question, you know, like, why don't you do this song anymore? I love that song. It was my favorite song you guys used to do. And why, why don't you do it anymore? It would really help me worship better if you were to do this song. I didn't know what I was asking, but to me it was, well, I like the song, I like the melody, I like the, the words they sing, it got me excited, and so to me, I was like, well, I worship best to that song. Now, my father-in-law, as kind as he could, kind of rebuked me for that, and he, and he asked me, you know, well, what does worship really mean to you? Are you worshiping God? And we started to walk through what I had asked because we came to the conclusion by the end of that conversation that I was coming to church expecting the church to get me in a place ready for worship. That I was coming there hoping, you know, his name is Joel, I, you know, I would come in and I'd say, uh, in my head at least, I'd say, Joel, I really hope you lead worship well today. I'd love to worship God. I sure hope you do well, because I'd love to worship him today. It was all based on, can this human being lead me to worship God better? Can this song lead me to worship God better? Can this um, environment, this, this atmosphere, can it make me a better worshiper? And again, my father-in-law, by the end of the conversation, made it very clear to me that it is not where worship starts. Worship does not begin when the five-minute countdown concludes and whoever is doing announcements stops talking. Worship begins at home. When you wake up that day, worship begins in your car as you drive to to church worship begins in the parking lot because what you're saying is i'm going to worship god tonight i don't care what song they sing i don't care whether it's the songs i like i don't care whether it's the right band i don't care if no one sings i'm going to worship god tonight so my father-in-law told me he said caleb i want you to come to church next week expecting nothing other than you worshiping god that's what you should expect and i did i went to church that week and i went in with no expectations i went in with no plans i just said lord i'm going to worship god today i'm going to worship you today and let me tell you i had never experienced the move of the spirit quite like that i don't even remember the songs we sung all i know is that day i sat there and with tears rolling down my face in awe at what had happened that day and, I, and again nothing was special i don't think anyone else would have even known that that was happening but to me in my heart the spirit was moving and it had nothing to do with the people who were leading that night, that day. It all had to do with my heart and my willingness to just simply say, Lord, I am going to worship you regardless of what happens today. And so as a church body, that's what we must do. And my father-in-law is not here to tell it to you, so I'll tell it to you. Worship does not start when our worship team begins playing. It says, addressing one another and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart is your heart in a place ready to worship that's the question you have to ask yourself each week i'm gonna have the worship team come back up and every week we conclude service with worship that's a pretty normal part of our our worship gathering i like that because it's a time of reflection however tonight's gonna be a little bit different because tonight is all about, are, are we in a place where we're allowing the Spirit to move? As a church body, are we gathering here with a heart ready for the Spirit to move? And I think the best way to, to watch that happen is to worship. Put our hearts in a place where we're ready to worship. Choose to worship. 
not because the song is our favorite, not because the worship team did a good job, but because our God deserves praise. Amen? Our God does deserve praise. And when we make that choice and say, Lord, I'm going to praise you no matter what, I promise the Spirit will move. He'll move in your own life. He'll move in your family. He'll move in the, in the places you've been struggling. He'll move in your workplace. He's going to move not because someone did it for you, because you said, Lord, I want to give you my whole life. I want to let you be the monopoly leader of my life. And I'm going to worship. And I'm going to praise God. And I'm going to sing praises to you. So I'm going to pray for us tonight, and then we're going to conclude in worship. And my challenge tonight is, is just to sing. But don't sing because I told you to. Sing because our God deserves to be sung to. As we've seen through chapters 1, 2, and 3, our God has done a lot for us. And because he's done a lot for us, we can sit here every single week in awe of all the things that God is doing for us, all that he's done for us, and all he will continue to do 